Taxation without representation. Hello, everybody. I'm David Schuster, and thanks for joining us on the conversation. Washington, D.C., the residents there, they have a larger population than two states. There are more, the average person in D.C. pays more federal taxes than all states. The total number of tax dollars altogether, more than 22 states, and D.C. has a gross domestic product bigger than 16 states. But what Washington, D.C. does not have is voting representation in Congress. In other words, they have no say in Congress on Supreme Court justices, taxes, spending, issues of war and peace. But there is an effort to try and change that. Joining us now is Bo Schuff, he is executive director of DC Vote. Um, Bo, the House passed a DC statehood bill, the Senate is taking it up and has scheduled a hearing. How significant is that? It's massively significant. It's the second time in history that the House has passed this bill, the first time being all of a year ago. And for the Senate to take this bill up while it's passed one chamber is also historic. Uh, we've had uh, hearings a couple of years ago, seven years ago to be exact, but it was not while the, the bill was in play. Uh, so we're at a really serious stage and a very, very historic one. A lot of people may be confused. Why is it that DC is not a state or at least doesn't have that voting representation in Congress? Sure, the Constitution requires a federal district that is home to the Capitol, so that it belongs to all Americans. And we agree with that. Uh, the DC statehood bill would preserve that federal capital and a federal district. That federal district is always going to be under control of Congress and always going to be available to the American people. But the land where our schools and our neighborhoods and our families and our grocery stores are would become the 51st state, Douglas Commonwealth, that would allow the 700,000 of us that call DC home to have full and equal representation. In other words, there's a federal enclave perhaps between the Capitol, the monuments, the White House, the Lincoln Memorial, and then the residential areas outside would be essentially the state. But there is this argument that some Republicans have made that, well, wait a second, we've already given um, electoral votes to people within this federal enclave. How can we change this without having to change the Constitution? Well, sure, and there's a number of ways to deal with. The first one to keep in mind is that the federal, the 23rd Amendment has two parts to it. One that creates the electors, and the second part that allows Congress to figure out how to deal with those electors. And so Congress can do with it what they want to make sure that those electors either you know follow the will of the people and are awarded based on popular vote is one idea. Congress can also simply decide not to seat them or not to allow them to vote because there has to be some mechanism, this was upheld in Bush v. Gore, for electors to be chosen, ratified by a, by a, a legislature. And then seated and cast their votes. And until Congress takes a preemptive action, that wouldn't happen. Additionally, we've seen challenging amendments, specifically the 18th, prohibition, repealed very quickly. The 21st Amendment that repealed prohibition happened in less than a year. And the 23rd doesn't come into play for another three years. There's plenty of time for it to be dealt with. Washington, D.C., or at least the residents of D.C., they're the only ones in any democracy around the world that are not represented in essentially the federal government. That's the unique That's distinction right. in in the United States. Washington, D.C. is comprised of about half of the residents are African Americans. 70% of all the residents are Democrats. Is that the toxic brew here, racism and politics? Absolutely. Jerry, it's, Jerry Connolly, representative of Virginia, said it exactly that way. When they tell you it's not about race or politics, it's absolutely about race or politics. Look, the, the District of Columbia freed the slaves before any other federal location. We, we Emancipation Day here is a, is a district holiday, and it was before any other jurisdiction done by federal action. And that means there was a huge influx of an African American population. The District of Columbia has always been Chocolate City. It is an African American majority for most of its existence and now plurality, it would be the only state with a plurality African American jurisdiction and just one of four where the persons of color are a majority. 
It is absolutely part of the reason why representation is, is denied here. I'd hate to be the skunk at the garden party, but it seems like to get anything done in Washington DC, you have to agree to perhaps break the filibuster. And that requires the agreement of Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin from West Virginia, Sinema from Arizona. Where do they stand on DC statehood? Yeah, let me challenge your phrasing just a little bit. We get a lot of stuff done here in Washington DC. It's Congress that doesn't seem to be able to get stuff done. <laughs> Fair point. Uh, but you're on, we, we do not have an opinion out of Senator Cinema that education work is ongoing. We're working in, in Arizona to make sure residents are aware of the situation and they can talk to their elected officials. Uh, recently, uh, Senator Manchin has said that he would prefer to see a constitutional amendment uh, deal with statehood. And, and we've presented arguments as to why that isn't necessary, isn't required, and, and isn't how we've always admitted states. 37 of them, in fact, all of them except the original 13, came in based on basic, simple legislation requiring a simple majority. And never once has a statehood admission been filibustered. So I think that you know we're gonna do some more education and convince those two senators and the two others from the Democratic caucus that aren't on the bill yet, that statehood is in line with American values. But you would agree there's, there's not 60 votes in the US Senate for statehood right now, right? Not yet. Okay, now it's possible, I suppose, if you can get to 51, and the idea is you would you would carve out what's known as a filibuster exemption, the same thing that Republicans did in order to carve out a simple majority for Supreme Court justices. Is there anything necessarily wrong in your view with a filibuster exemption carving it out just for granting statehood? There isn't, especially because statehood is in a different part of the Constitution than is legislation. There is actually some precedent for the idea, maybe not precedent, but there's some there's an argument to be made. Uh, that statehood is a special thing. It's mentioned separately in the Constitution from passing bills or raising taxes. And so it should be treated in a different way. And it, like I said, 37 times there's never been a filibuster of a state, uh, and it shouldn't be this time either. One of the interesting arguments I've heard from a couple of Republicans, including Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, of all members of Congress, suggested that he's against statehood, but he would be in favor of rolling back federal taxes on DC residents. In other words, giving DC residents the same tax status as say the residents of Guam and Puerto Rico who also don't pay federal taxes. Would that be a solution? The idea that Matt Gates is offering a serious solution to anything is, is <laughs> a bit humorous on its front. But the fact of the matter is Washingtonians are proud to be Americans and we're proud to play our part. And we're fine passing and, 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 and paying our taxes. Uh, we understand what that means. It means that we can, you know, implement things like universal pre-K and other things that are important to Washingtonians. So we're fine paying our taxes, and we'll continue to do so. We just feel like we fought a war over taxation without representation. We won, and it should apply to everybody. How much of the conversation has changed, both because of President Trump and that photo op he had over a year and a half ago, where he went to a church across the street from the White House, used federal forces to essentially clear out peaceful protesters. And by the way, they did use tear gas. And then also because of January 6th, it wasn't as if DC could suddenly call up the National Guard, only the President can call up the National Guard into DC. Both of those instances were most definitely wake up moments for some folks across the country. There's always been a key support level for statehood and for understanding what's going on. But absolutely, there were folks who didn't necessarily know what it meant to live in DC and what it meant to live without representation. And those moments were an opportunity for us to show them what, what that really felt like. And the fact that the president can take over our local cops without any notification.
Well, it, look, it's it's long been uh, shocking to me, and I was a resident of D.C. for 17 years and, and fought like hell for D.C. statehood. So I'll be honest about this. I, I do think it's total racism and politics uh, that D.C. is denied representation in Congress. Uh, there is this other idea that a couple of Republicans have floated through the years, and that is, okay, go ahead and grant a voting representation just in the House to DC and then grant an extra vote to say a state like Utah. Yeah. Um, where does that go? You know, that, that idea was, it actually passed both chambers. It was in two separate Congresses, so it didn't become law. Uh, but it has passed and it had bipartisan support. The problem there is even if you go so far as to give DC a vote in the House and two full votes in the Senate, you still have control of the district by Congress, and that's just not fair. We have absolutely no local autonomy. The Congress has the ability to overturn our local laws and our local spending. We're prevented all the time. We can't legalize marijuana, for example, even though residents voted massively in support of it and states across the country have implemented it. We have no ability to use Medicaid funds for low income abortion services, even though other states can. They blocked domestic partner registries for 10 years. They blocked needle exchanges for 10 years. There's just myriad of examples of times that Congress has interfered with the decisions that DC residents have made about how to govern DC. And that is one of the most fundamental American values there is that we are governed based on the consent of the government. And to people who are not aware of this, I mean, DC's budget is still essentially subject to the approval of Congress. So, as you mentioned, as you know, 10 years ago, as I saw, when DC wanted to have a needle exchange program, well, the money for that was stripped out by Congress right. and said, no, DC can't do it, even though the residents of DC, the leadership of DC said, no, this will, this will help us. Yeah, and it goes to the ridiculous. Two years ago, they told us we couldn't label wet wipes in a specific way because members of the House of Representatives objected to it. So we couldn't say that a wet wipe was flushable. So whether it's the ridiculous or the very serious, Congress interferes and we have no say in Congress. Are you very optimistic about this or is there reason to still be pessimistic given the political divide in Congress right now? I am a hardworking optimistic is the way that I like to put it. We have the best shot we've had in a very long time. We've advanced this bill farther than ever before in history, but we know that there's work to be done. And to get it done, what gets it across the finish line in your estimation? I think the biggest thing is we have to continue to increase support among the American people. We saw polling supporting statehood four years ago in the 30s, and we are now at 54. And so we're going to continue to work to teach people about what life in the district is really like, that we can go bowling, that we have a landfill, important things to become a state. Uh, as some of our opponents have pointed out. But that's, that's the work we're gonna do. And I think that's what's gonna get us to, to the finish line is getting that support among the public up higher. Well, Bob, good luck to you. And again, the statistics to me speak for themselves. A larger population than two state, a larger gross domestic product than 16 states, more total federal tax dollars than 22 states, more active members of the military called DC home than 33 states. It is time for statehood for the District of Columbia in some fashion. Bob, good luck to you and thanks for joining us, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. You got it. And welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Facebook says it is soon going to start enforcing some consistent rules on politicians. So, what exactly does that mean? Well, joining us now to talk about this is Katie Canales. She is a tech reporter for Business Insider, joins us from Austin, Texas. Katie, what is Facebook up to? Right, so Facebook just said last week that it's going to keep Trump suspended from its platform until January 23. And so this this is the latest development since Facebook initially banned Trump following the January 6th riot. And it's it's significant because it 
Facebook is also saying that it's going to treat all users, including politicians, with the same set of rules. And that's a departure from how it has historically treated world leaders on its platform. Because so. in the past, there was a certain newsworthiness, even if a Donald Trump or another world leader lied and it was clear that he was lying. But just because they were saying it, there was some newsworthiness behind it, right? Yes, yes, that's what company executives have said, that that what world leaders say is, is newsworthy and therefore it deserves to be seen and heard by the public. Um, so it said that it would not fact check or remove posts um, by those politicians, but um, as of last week that, that will uh, soon change. Now there was this advisory board recently, a Facebook advisory board, which I've seen some people describe it as like the Facebook Supreme Court, which said that, that they had to be more clear about why they were suspending Donald Trump and essentially gave Facebook six months to sort of figure this out. So this latest action by Facebook, how does that dovetail with what this advisory board suggested? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it seems like Facebook actually took its oversight board's advice um, to heart. It um, After it banned Trump in January, it, it passed the, the case along to its oversight board um, to ask it to review its, its decision. And the board um, agreed with Facebook that it should have removed Trump, but it said that Trump Excuse me. That Facebook should have decided the duration of the suspension, um, and that it, it applied kind of a vague penalty to Trump, um, which which it, it shouldn't have done. So um, it, Facebook looks like it took the hint. It, it decided how long Trump should stay suspended for, um, and it also decided um, that it will apply the same set of rules to all of, all of its users. Now, how does Facebook go about making sure that those rules are applied equally, whether it's you know to the to the right, to the left, to, to people who believe that the Earth is flat? I mean, how does Facebook go about making sure that they can somehow police all of these statements across the spectrum? That's probably going to have to be something that we wait and see. I mean, we're going to have to see how strictly it enforces this new change. Um, that also applies to government leaders from around the world, not just you know U.S. politics. We saw something similar from a different company recently when Twitter Twitter deleted a post from posted by the Nigerian president, and then the the government responded by banning Twitter from from its from the country. So we're gonna have to wait and see to see how strictly Facebook enforces this. And I know a lot of users of social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, others have complained that in their own individual posts, they can be reported by somebody who doesn't like the post or doesn't like the language. And that sometimes these social media companies are very quick to suspend or ban somebody. Um, is that related to any of this? I think how these platforms treat users at large on their on, on online versus how they treat world leaders, they're somewhat different. Um, these companies have historically taken a very hands-off approach um, to to all of their users and how they moderate content. Um, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, he's famously said that, that the company doesn't want to be the, the arbiters of truth. They don't want to decide what's right or what's wrong. Um, so I, I think how, how these platforms um, moderate what, what users post, it, it's, it differs um, from your, your ordinary everyday user um, versus how world leaders post. Um, but as of, of, as of last week, that will, that will also soon change. All right, that's a that's a fair point. What about the point that you know sometimes it's not just what the politicians say, but it might be what their campaign says in an advertisement. That sometimes the advertisements can get into sort of a gray area of well, the ad is suggesting a particular set of facts or opinions. It's not stating it for the record, and yet there are some people who say, well, that's a misleading ad. But is it a false ad? There are all sorts of areas of gray in this. How does Facebook deal with that? 
Um, it looks like this new change that it rolled out last week, it will um, likely apply to ad advertisements as well. Um, and so we'll we'll have to see, you know, similarly to how it um, Facebook uh, cracks down on on world leaders, we'll have to see how how strictly it enforces this new change with um, political advertising. And Katie, what's been the reaction both within the tech industry, but also in the political world to what Facebook has been up to? I think it's. I think everyone um, has really um, seen that this move is significant. Like I was saying, it, it it really is a departure from how Facebook has treated world leaders on its platform. Um, in two years, that that is a long, a somewhat long suspension. I, I don't know if surprised. Surprising is the right word, but um, it is significant uh, what Facebook did. And I think a lot of people um, have taken note of that, especially since the suspension um, ends on January uh, 2023, which is um, importantly close to 2024 when, when Trump has said that he's seriously considering running for presidential office again. Yeah, I mean, he could conceivably launch a new presidential campaign at the end of January, February in 2023, the year before, which is traditionally the time frame for when candidates decide they're gonna go to New Hampshire and Iowa and start campaigning. So we would have Facebook going for him again, I suppose. Does this also take on some greater significance in that Donald Trump suggested, "Oh, I don't really need Facebook or Twitter, I can create my own platform. He created his platform, it lasted less than 30 days, failed miserably because it didn't get very many views and seemed to be nothing more than a blog. Given how challenging it really is for politicians, businesses, entities to go ahead and try to get into this kind of platform business, does that make the decision by Facebook even perhaps more significant? I think it does. I think it does. I think um, a Trump ally has said that um, Trump's Facebook account, it's its essential if he wants to run for presidential office again, specifically with his fundraising and, and online campaign strategy. Um, so there is something riding on Trump's potential account being reinstating, reinstated in January 2023. Um, as far as having you know a mainstream platform to use to reach millions of people in, in real time, essentially, that was important for him during his presidency. And it argue, arguably would be if, if he were to campaign for another run, especially since he will he, he will be barred from uh, Twitter. Twitter also banned him after the uh, January 6th riot. And it said in February that even if Trump does run for president in 2024, he will still not be allowed back on the website. So as of right now, Trump is releasing statements you know, to the public via his website, donaldjtrump.com. And he, he doesn't have access to a mainstream social media uh, website. And Katie, it wasn't that long ago when Facebook seemed to seem to be in a little bit of trouble, particularly on the left. A lot of people suggested that Facebook is a more conservative leaning kind of site, that it features more conservative voices because of whatever algorithms or whatever the allegation was. And a number of people said, you know what, I'm giving up on Facebook. I'm getting off of it, I'm not gonna use it anymore. Um, has that essentially stopped? Is there still a certain stink factor that, a lot, that enough people have with Facebook that Facebook is still concerned about it? Or has that storm largely passed? I do not think that storm has passed at all. I think we're still in the in the thick of it. I think uh, some on the right, many on the right, are, are going to continue to to hold the belief that tech platforms are are bent on on uh, discriminating against conservative voices. Um, I I think um, you know. Well, it's also on the, on the on, I'd say yeah, surely on the right right now, but also it seems like you know there's maybe there's a conversion here, and that is a convergence, and that is there have been traditionally people on the left who don't trust Facebook, and I've got you know plenty of leftist friends who say I don't use Facebook anymore, and I don't want to give them any business, and now it seems like there's a growing sentiment on the right as well, and I wonder if there's any danger to Facebook if you have the two sort of political opposites now both for different reasons in agreement saying well Facebook is really not a fair arbiter, we shouldn't be using the platform. 
Yeah, I mean, Facebook's facing a lot of pressure from from both sides of the aisle, not just the right. Um, Democratic lawmakers, they have long said that you know social media websites, they don't do enough to police misinformation and hate speech online. Um, so that's kind of the, the left scrutiny that, that Facebook is, is um, grappling with. But either way, the, these companies, including Facebook, they're facing a lot of pressure as they're they're navigating these, these challenging and complex content decisions. Um, and, and yeah, like I said, they're getting it from both, uh, both political parties. And is the technology changing in any major significant way? Any major technological breakthroughs that we've seen on a company like Facebook over the last year? Um, not that I know of. I think if anything, there's just more self-awareness um, from the company of, of the, the political climate. Um, and how um, politicians are, are viewing or are perceiving tech platforms in regard to you know what kind of content is being posted and how they're handling it. Um, but it, regardless, we're just we're in a, a, a political climate right now where anything that is posted online and how the company handles what is posted online is going to be politicized. And I don't think we're we're going to see that stop um, anytime soon. And also more money, I would assume, going through Facebook and other social media platforms, given that television advertising continues to sort of shift away from traditional TV to online platforms where certainly more and more younger people are getting their news and information. Yes, absolutely. I think Facebook's political advertising business is going to continue continue to be very lucrative and vital to to a lot of different entities. Katie, any predictions about what happens with Facebook over the next year, year and a half, two years? Any chance that this decision of theirs could change again? I'm I'm not sure. I think it's a little too soon to say. Um, I think in regard to Trump, it's it's they're going to be watching his behavior. Um, they're going to, like I said, reevaluate in early 2023. Um, but as far as yeah, as far as you know, tweaking this change that it announced last last week, I think it's going to be interesting to see what what they're going to do regarding this new enforcement policy. Yeah. And certainly, Donald Trump has turned on on Zuckerberg. Trump in his latest speech said, "Oh, Zuckerberg wanted to be my friend while I was in the White House, and now he doesn't want anything to do with me because I'm out of power." So clearly, Donald Trump has signaled to his supporters that Facebook is not to be trusted, and there's still, of course, the anger on the left about how Facebook has been behaving towards progressives towards for many years. In any case, fascinating conversation. Katie Canales, she's the tech reporter with Business Insider. Katie, thanks for doing this, we appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Oh, you got it. And that is our conversation for this time on behalf of Asher Cofield and the rest of the team at The Conversation and the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.